This is my father, Tim Bailey. Most of you know him. I love him. <laughs> I'm thankful that he is here to preach to us today. I felt like I was slapped every time somebody said Pastor Bailey. It just didn't seem right, you know. I'm Pastor Bailey, this usurper of the throne. <laughs> I always tell people that the goal of a father is to die, but to die at peace. And the way you do that is you raise your son to take over your work for you. A lot of times that's a business, it's a family business, but for us as believers, the thing that's most important is that our sons and our daughters love the church and that we can die knowing the church will be strengthened by them. And so it gives me joy to see uh, a number of sons who love the church and build her up, and Joseph is one of them. And there are a number of you here who give me joy. Now, I want to begin this morning by talking about something you <laughs> wouldn't expect me to talk about, and that's something called the Enlightenment. Have you ever heard of the Enlightenment? Huh? Have you heard of it? Certainly those that go to Mars Hill have heard of the Enlightenment. You know what the word is because in light and meant. And so it's talking about light coming, right? And so it's referring, Moses, to a period of time in history when everybody who's smart, you know what I mean by smart, some students in a class are smart and some of us are dumb. And I was a dumb one. All right, I always got below a C, graduating the bottom half of a lousy public school. The smart ones believe that they are enlightened. They think that their brain is good, that they see things other people don't see, that they understand things other people don't understand. And a couple of hundred years ago, what happened was a whole bunch of really smart men began to work really hard to discover everything they could, all right? And maybe the, the, the best known of them is a guy named, anybody want to take a guess at who the guy was? Who would it be? Be Isaac Newton. Did you get it? Good. And do you, do you know what Isaac Newton, what was his most famous book? Don't give it to me in Latin, give it to me in English. What was his most famous book? Any of you Thistleton men know? <laughs> it was called The Principles of Math, Mathematical Principles. Now, when I went to high school in Elgin, public high school, I had gone Christian school up till high school, I got into algebra, and it just blew my brain. I'd go home and study. I never studied for any other class. I'd go home and study. I'd beat my head against algebra. And I would sometimes sit in the class crying. I couldn't understand it. And what he kept asking is, if we're talking about numbers, why do we have letters? I never got past that. Letters were so frustrating to me because you were jumping from one world to another. And so I would just cry. I was a high school man. I, I was manly. I cried. <laughs> I felt the same in chemistry, actually. Now, I'm bringing this up because the Enlightenment was a period of time where a number of men gave themselves to the study of everything in the natural world. For instance, Jonathan Edwards was part of the Enlightenment because he wrote one of the most scholarly things on spiders that's ever been written. Did you know that? And, and we had a friend that, was, that got his doctorate and his, 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 his thing was dragonflies. 
And he said, yeah, I've actually read Jonathan Edwards' book on spiders, you know. Cotton Mather was a pastor. So Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in, in New England. Cotton Mather was a pastor in England. And what did Cotton Mather die of? Any of you know? Cotton Mather was a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, and he died of? He died because he gave himself to developing a smallpox vaccine. It was cutting edge at the time. You know, you don't install software in the first iteration. He did, and he died. He died of the smallpox vaccine. But it furthered what today we have, which is a world where it's been eradicated. It's one, of the, uh, it's one of the things that the green people are okay with us removing from nature, <laughs> you know. Now, I'm telling you all this because what happened was they began to study the stars. They began to study whether or not the world, the universe revolved around the earth or the sun, they began to study math. And, 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 and Isaac Newton realized that there was such a thing as gravity. Now, we take that for granted, right? You know, well, of course there's gravity. Any idiot knows there's gravity, right? You know, if, if you throw the apple in the air or it drops from the tree, it's going to hit and then it might get bruised and it won't be as good for eating. You know, that's gravity. You know, gravity is when, uh, what was it, Fiona decided to go over the bike ramp, you know, and gravity was what happened when you hit your handlebars on the other side of the bike ramp, you know, we all know gravity, all right, and what they decided was, you know, if the sun and the planets and the earth are decipherable by the laws of mathematics, if we can describe gravity, if we can look at spiders and learn how they live, if we can, and then there was a guy named Adam Smith, and he said, well, if we can do this with physical things, we can do this with the way human beings live together. And so he began to study how it was that nations were able to trade with each other, and he began to notice that when People did selfishly what they wanted to do with trading and buying and selling that somehow good came out of it for everybody, all right? You know that? That's Adam Smith, all right? And he was a political economist, but what they called him, what we call it today is economics, all right? It was, at the beginning, it was political economy. And Adam Smith could not, for the life of him, figure out why it worked well. Because everybody was being selfish. <laughs> the one selling was being selfish, the one buying was being selfish, and somehow it created trade and somehow it fed cities. And so when he wrote the wealth of nations, he admitted that he didn't know why selfishness worked to the good of people. And so what he did was he took a little shortcut, like a punctuated equilibrium for evolution, you know? And the shortcut he took was what he called the... Anybody know? Go ahead. The invisible hand... And so today, books are being written about whether or not Adam Smith was acknowledging God by using that construction. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? All of this work, studying, depended upon empiricism, the scientific revolution, people using their brains to look at this world. Okay? And you know what happened? Remember what it's called. The Enlightenment. Sounds triumphant, doesn't it? What they did was they then took their smarty pants, pride, and they took it to Scripture. And they really said to hell with Scripture. 
I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. But it immediately became cutting the umbilical cord of Western culture from its dependence on God's book written. And the first thing they attacked was what? Does anybody want to take a guess what the first thing they attacked was? I want to hear it. No, no, no. Remember, they're very proud. That's what the Greeks in Athens, that's what the Areopagus laughed about. Anybody back there now? The first thing they attacked was original sin. And they said, no, there is no original sin. They said, no, the depravity of man, uh, you know, Thomas Paine, you know, common sense that really was the track that started the Reformation, or the uh, revolution, <laughs> Reformation, revolution. You know, the, you know Thomas Paine, common sense? He, Jefferson, other people, if you read what they say about original sin, what they say is any God that would condemn people on the basis of the sin of Adam is a God who is a demon. That's actually, I think, the word that Paine used, demon. He's a demon. And so all these smarty-pants men, are you with me, of the Enlightenment said no to God, said no to God's word, and said no to, to man's sinfulness. And this is why today, if you want to hear a description from anybody about why somebody's using drugs, I'm just singling that out, okay? What does everybody say about that? What everybody says is, he hasn't made good choices. I mean, you all know that's true. You never call it a sin. You, you make it clinical. You do something that, that makes the fault somebody else's and certainly doesn't make the fault his heart and that he has a sinful heart. And listen, kids. As you grow up, you're going to find inside of yourself things you hate and you will never tell anybody about. You'll find yourself wanting things that are horrible you'll want your sister to be ugly because you want to be pretty. And two people in the same family can't be pretty. They have to compete, right? Yeah, that's right. She agrees. And people are going to tell you, oh, honey, there's room for two pretty girls in a family. And you just need to realize, you hear that word, realize. You, you know, mommy loves you both just as much. There are lots of boys in the world. You know, they'll come up with all these explanations that will make you learn that you need to make better choices. And they'll never talk to you about the fact that if you want your sister to be ugly, that's because your heart is wicked. That is sin. And so when they try to explain what it is that you need to learn and, and how it doesn't redound to the comfort of your family for you to be competitive with your sister, right? What they don't deal with is your heart. And your heart is sinful. And you know it at your age. You know that you have sin in your heart. I do too. A lot of sin. And so I want us to start this sermon. I know you think I'm way out in ozone layer. You know, what's, you know, where's the Bible? Where's the sermon? You know, I want us to start this by realizing all of you, we are the product of the Enlightenment. And we have gotten to the point where 400 years ago, there was not a human being on the face of the earth that did not believe in God. And the Enlightenment has brought us to the point where we not only don't believe in sin, we don't believe in God. Now I bring that up as an introduction to our text. 
And our text is found in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 9. When I was studying at University of Wisconsin in Madison, I took Greek from the classics professor. She'd gotten her doctorate at Bryn Mawr, very sophisticated lady. And one day we hit a sentence of Plato. And the sentence was, none of us could get it. I was the stupidest guy in the class. And nobody could figure out what it was. I had an advantage, which was I had read scripture. And I had read about Corinth in scripture. And the sentence was something to the effect that everyone not, no, nobody, everyone, Corinth, not, and live. And everybody kept trying to change the word or come up with the right you know, translation. And all of a sudden, I realized what it was saying. I said, not everybody can live in San Francisco. And she looked at me, and she said, that's right. Corinth was San Francisco. It was degraded. It was filthy. It was filled with sexual immorality, and yet it was proud about it, you know? Unbelievable. And so the church was just like Corinth, right? The church is always just like the town it lives in. And so they had this problem where they were real proud in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul wasn't stupid, but he kept hammering at their pride intellectually. They sued each other. They had horrible sexual immorality in the church. They talked about their spiritual gifts, and they talked about how their spiritual gifts were better than the other dude's spiritual gifts, you know? And so that's the group that this letter is written to. And our text is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 9, and, it's, and this is what it says, and it's God's word, which is eternally true, okay? This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come. I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Remember, I told you, he wasn't stupid. He'd studied with the best seminary professor in the Jewish world, Gamaliel. When I came to you, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And you know what he could have written there is he said, so that your faith wouldn't rest on me. Right? Your faith must not rest on your parents, your pastor, your teachers. It has to rest on Jesus, okay? And then he says, yet we do speak wisdom. So he's just decimated wisdom. He's just decimated the enlightenment. He's just trashed it, you know. I didn't try to be sophisticated in my rhetoric, you know. I wasn't filled with words that were sophisticated. I just gave it to you straight, okay? And then he says, so it wasn't wisdom. I determined to know nothing. And, you know, that's a pejorative phrase, Oh, they're the know-nothing, you know, know-nothingism is like people that are like poor white trash in the South, right? Know-nothing, you know, like uh, Duck or, yeah, Duck Dynasty, is that what it is? You know, know-nothingism, you know, they, they grow beards, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he makes a pivot here, right here. He's no nothingism, he's not sophisticated, he's not wisdom. And then he says, but yet, we do speak wisdom. And so apparently wisdom is good and wisdom is bad, but it depends on what you mean by wisdom. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, so he's pivoting back, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. 
For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, maybe the greatest understatement in all of Scripture. <laughs> you know? And of course, that's why it's featured so prominently in the sermons and Acts. You crucified him, but God has made him the judge of the earth. You will stand before him, you know, if they had known who they were crucifying. <laughs> but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Remember what I told you about the enlightenment. It's all about what you can see and hear and touch and, and the figures you can calculate. But he says here, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Father, may the words of my mouth and, Father, the thoughts of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in university communities, okay? And you know what's true of university communities. They're all proud. It's the defining mark of university communities, and that's why they have the most degraded sexual sins. It's because they're so proud that they've become fools. And in Bloomington, it is very true that Christians who come into Bloomington, who were at classical schools before they come for college, who were homeschooled, who had good churches like this, when they come into Bloomington, what happens to them is they begin to hang out with very bright people, smarty pants. And they have professors who are smarty pants. And they get intimidated. They get fearful. And they begin to realize how stupid their parents are. And how stupid their pastor is. And how stupid God is. And they realize there are a lot of people out there that live without God. <laughs> and they realize that those people seem to be okay. You know, some of them die, but, you know, most of them live... And it looks like they get rich, you know, they get, they get an education, they go out into the world, they get rich, they have pretty wives, they drive SUVs, you know, they dye their hair, they run, they have memberships, at, I don't know where you have memberships, they, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, and it looks good. And it looks good to be able to leave behind your conscience, you know, because your conscience doesn't seem to have a place at a university. Sometimes there are kids that have gone to Christian colleges and then they come to Indiana University to get their doctorates. And their faith is still weak but somewhat intact when they get to Indiana University, but then they start getting a doctorate. And you know what usually happens is they decide that creation isn't true. That's usually the thing that, you know, they, 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 they feel that that's the sine qua non of an educated life. Just give up the creation. And so they think, well, this is stupid. You know, it's obvious that the Grand Canyon is old. And so the earth isn't created by God in seven days. And with that, they give up original sin. They say, well, that's stupid. Some guy named Adam. Adam was probably a tribe of hominids. You know, and it's just a representative thing for why man's alienated and every people group has some story of the origin of evil because that was the one thing, of course, that the Enlightenment could not deal with was evil. You know, evil did exist. And so... They were constantly trying to come up with some way of handling evil that was other than original sin in Adam, right? And do you know what happens to these Christian kids who grew up in Christian homes with godly parents? What happens to them is that they become apostate. They turn their back on God. Typically that happens right when they begin to date an unbeliever. 
And if I were to tell you the one reason that Christian sons and daughters turn away from God in the 30 years in Bloomington, that's absolutely number one. When they go outside of the people of God to find a partner for life, a spouse, it is impossible for them to continue to believe. It occasionally happens, but it's impossible. It's a direct violation of God's command. But it also reflects a prior movement on their part away from faith, away from their conscience, away from original sin, away from Scripture. And so you watch them go. You know, I can remember a young woman who was brought into the church office by her father. Her father was bringing her to IU, and he was delighted to have found us on the internet. He walked in the office one day unannounced, introduced his daughter, and he was just like panting for us to care for her. You know, and of course, within I, my recollection is six months. Do you remember that one? I think within six months she was dating an unbeliever. She was gone, and she's apostatized. Apostatized means you say no to God and you turn away from Him. It's it's the most awful thing that happens to a soul ever. It is an awful thing, and so. That's not always the way it happens. I remember one day uh, being called to come and meet with a young man who was getting his doctorate in English. And the one thing I knew about that man, because everybody told me, was that he was very bright. He was a really smart, smarty pants. And I got to know him, and I said to him once, you know, Brandon, what everybody tells me is how smart you are. How is it that you convince everybody how smart you are that they all tell me how smart you are, you know? And Brandon was, he had started getting his degree in English literature, and what happened to him was that everybody in English literature, in the English department, was completely dismissive of Scripture and of God. And so he was about to apostatize. He was right on the edge, and so... I don't know if you were there that night, but I think three of us, Jeff Ewer, myself, somebody else in Brandon sat right outside of, uh, what's the name of that restaurant that's now defunct over by the business school? I can't remember it. But anyhow, we sat there on the sidewalk outside of this restaurant from like 7 at night to 11 at night. And just talking to him about God. And he was married with children. And so our hearts were just scared to death. And you know that Brandon now is an absolute um, pillar of our church in, in, in Bloomington. God rescued him. There are other people who stayed faithful to the Lord in Bloomington, but when they moved to take their positions, they apostatized. Now, why do I bring this up? I want you to understand that there is a perpetual mortal battle between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. It doesn't mean that penicillin doesn't work. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't wear masks because scientists are stupid. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't read books. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't study math. But there's only room for one authority that's final. And that authority is Scripture. And I don't say that because I'm stupid. I say that because I fear God. And he has said that every word of Scripture is true. In fact, in fact the Greek word is theopneustos. Pneumatic hose carries air. Theo, air. And so what the Bible says about itself is that every word in it comes from God and that it is inspired. So if you all of a sudden stop breathing because you drown and they pull you out of the water and you're lying on the sand, what you want is anthropustos. You want somebody to give you mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, blow their air into you, right? Right? Because your lungs aren't breathing, you gotta get air. 
Well, that's what the Bible is for us when it comes to God's truth and our consciences and sin and righteousness, okay? And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's absolutely destroying man's wisdom, destroying it. And he says, remember, I did not come to you with sophisticated language. I didn't come with sophisticated arguments. I came with the cross. I came determined to know nothing but the cross of Jesus. Now, we have a problem here. And our problem is that we think the cross of Jesus is extremely sophisticated and wise, right? I mean, what's, what's more wise than God himself taking upon himself the sins of the world? What's wiser than the substitutionary atonement, right? Where God takes, Jesus takes the wrath of his father and says, put it on me. And now here is my adopted son and let him go because I took your wrath, right? That's wise, right? Isn't that wisdom, right? Is anybody going to say that's not wise? Don't you think that's wise? We've been listening to this for so many years in church that the scandal of the cross has been lost to us. The cross is the stupidest thing in human wisdom, the stupidest thing that's ever been invented. Pascal in the Pensees has this section where he talks about original sin. And he basically says, you know, the idea that I'm going to be condemned because of somebody's sin thousands of years before me is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Who would ever believe such a stupid thing? that I'm condemned because of Adam's sin. You know, it's stupid. That's what Pascal says. But then he ends it by saying, and yet without this truth, I don't know myself. In other words, that very truth that says stupid is just the beginning of me knowing who I am and why I am the way I am. <laughs> you know, original sin, I love original sin. It is my lifeblood. Without it, I don't even begin to understand what's in my heart, okay? And so, the cross has become wisdom to us, and we think that everybody with half a brain should understand it and should love it. That's how prevailing the evangelical ethos is, you know? It's just like, well, this is wisdom. And, you know, what's wrong with you? You should love Jesus. Jesus will make your life better. He died for you. And everybody goes, yes, Jesus died for me. So it took going over to London for me to begin to have something other than an evangelical view of the cross. I went down to Hyde Park, which is where... You, you remember I, I talked about smarty pants? Well, there's this park in London where loudmouths go. Okay, smarty pants, loudmouths. You know what a loudmouth is, right? Tate is sort of a loudmouth. Okay, they just motormouth me. You know the word motormouth, you know? And so the motormouths that think they're smarty pants go to Hyde Park and they stand up on like milk cartons and they begin to just yell what they think and believe at everybody. And I always wanted to go over there, so I went over there, and it was at the time of the Gulf War, and there were uh, a bunch of people yelling. And one of the guys that was yelling was a British black man. And so he had a British accent, uh, and he was black, and he was absolutely calling down fury on the United States of America for its racism. And I just thought, how precious this is. You've got some dude with the benefit of a British education and a British accent. He could be hired by a Presbyterian church in America to be the senior pastor. And he's saying that we're racist. Now, I'm not denying that racism exists in America, most particularly from black people. Did you hear me? 
okay? But something patriotic in me got angry that this dude is trashing my country in Hyde Park, and he's never even been here. And so I was at the back of this large crowd, and I, I yelled at him as he was talking, and I said, I said, what do you know about the United States? You think you know the United States? When have you ever been to the United States? And of course, immediately he's yelling at me about how I'm one of these racist Americans and all this stuff, you know. And I said, you don't know anything about the United States and race, which is true. Brits don't know anything about it because you know what the racism in Britain is, don't you? Well, it's partly to, against Australia which is a joke, but true. And the other part of it is against Indians. Because all across Europe, it's, it's uh, Muslims that are taking over their countries. Because Muslims have children. And so there's racism everywhere. Every country has racism. The only question is what its racism is most focused on. Well, the reason I tell you this story is the instant that I spoke, I had a bunch of Arabs surrounding me. So there were Arabs at the back of the crowd, and the minute they heard me speaking, I was white and I was from America, and therefore they knew I was a Christian. And so the crowd flipped, and it, it came around me. And these Arabs, have you ever known any Arabs? When they talk to you, they're like, they are right in your face. And these guys hated my guts. And they were furious with me. And so they immediately said, well, if you're an American, then you're a Christian, aren't you? You know, it just went from, what do you know about racism in America to, you're an American to, you're a Christian. All right, you with me? Because that's how the world sees America. It's Christian, right? And I said, you bet I'm a Christian. And I love Jesus Christ. You know, I was made for that moment. And do you know what they said to me next? They said to me, <laughs> Christians. <laughs> well, that means you worship Jesus Christ. And I said, yes, that's true. And they said, some God you have. And I had no clue what was coming. They said, your God couldn't even keep from being murdered. People, the cross is foolishness. The cross is foolishness. The concept that God allowed himself to be crucified by wicked man makes absolutely no sense according to the wisdom of the world. I mean, do you see this? And what it requires is humility, right? Do you understand this? It requires incredible humility to see that as wisdom. And where does that humility come from? Does it come from a wife who's always telling you you did it wrong? <laughs> you know, no, that's helpful, <laughs> you know. But there is no place to get humility except what? The work of the Holy Spirit. God has to give you humility. God has to give you faith. You can't work it up on your own. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, I didn't come sophisticated. I did not come with large words. I did not come with philosophical arguments. That's what Hodge says here. It's not philosophy. I came to you with the stupidity of God dying. And he says, this is God's wisdom. And then he says, what? He says, it's a mystery. He says, this is a mystery, 
God's wisdom is a mystery. And then he says, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And so what you understand is that God has intentionally, intentionally hidden salvation and the cross from the world. He set it up in such a way that nobody would accept it or receive it. And if you think I'm exaggerating, think of the question given to Jesus, remember? Where Jesus was asked, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus said, it fulfills the prophet, anybody know? Isaiah, who says that having eyes they will not see, having ears they will not hear, else what? Else they would repent. God hides the gospel so that people will not repent. Okay? That's why Jesus taught in parables. Now, if you're an enlightenment man, smarty pants, loudmouth, and you've cut yourself off from original sin, and you believe in working hard to gain knowledge, and you believe that the knowledge of man has proven the knowledge of Scripture wrong, and you judge God, how on earth do you get to the point where you are willing to go to God and admit your ignorance, your stupidity, and your hard-heartedness and ask him to take it away? How do you do that? If your whole life is built on getting good grades, getting a good job, making good arguments and briefs and in the court, being the management guru, how do you admit to God that you're a fool and that you can't see it and would he open your eyes? Your whole life is based on the enlightenment. And the truth is, in churches like this, education is more important than God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have made an idol of education in the Reformed world. And I'm not against Mars Hill. I came to a wonderful evening last night, and I went home and told my son that it was perfect. I'm not against study and reading and education. But if we think that education is what will lead us to God, we have no idea that he has determined to make the most important truths in your life without which you can't understand yourself. He has made them hidden. He has hidden them. He has made them a mystery. And so no matter how much you read Pilgrim's Progress, no matter how much you study, no matter how much of a godly mother you have, you will never know the wisdom of God until you plead with him to take away your stupidity and your hardness of heart. And your children's hearts are hard, and it's the job of mothers and fathers to expose the hearts of their children to their children. They need to come to the end of themselves. Because isn't that how you came to God? <laughs> Is there one of us here that came to faith without coming to the end of ourselves? One more thing and I'll be done. Did you notice that our passage ends with him quoting the Old Testament? So he's talked about the wisdom of man being foolishness. Then he talks about the wisdom of God being wisdom. He talks about it being hidden, it being a mystery. And then he ends with this, just as it is written. In other words, what's about to come proves the points that he's been making, just as it is written, okay? 
and he quotes the Old Testament. Here's a quotation. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, now you, you understand what he's saying there, right? We all tend to make that into one of those promises, you know, that you put up on your wall, eye has not seen nor ear heard. But we don't ever think about eye has not seen or ear heard except to make the point of how incredibly glorious it is, right? But what he's saying is, in all the wisdom of man and all the enlightenment and all the wonderful technology we have, we, we can't, you know, even Wikipedia can't even come up with the barest minimum description of what God has prepared for us. In other words, God has also hidden the blessings of the cross. You see this? God has hidden the blessings that come to those who love him. I don't know where I would be in life if I had not grown up with some godly old people. And I watched them prepare to die. And I saw that they loved Jesus. And it was like, wow. And I saw that they were content. I saw that everybody respected them and nobody respected them. In other words, I saw godliness and it was so far away from anything I had seen from the world. And I could give you a number of people like that from my personal life. You all know people like this, where they have given up on this world. They do their job, they're hard workers, they're kind. They, you know, it's not that they don't live a good life, but you see that they're in heaven. Okay. So I'll tell you one story, and then I'll make the application, and I'll be done. So when I went out to Boston to go to seminary, I had some gifts, and my gifts were I cleaned a good toilet, I knew how to clean carpet, I knew how to garden, I knew how to prune shrubs and, and, and uh, apple, crab apple trees, and, and so I could use my hands. And so I went to look for a job because I had wife and family. And I looked on the bulletin board, and there was a sign up on the bulletin board that said, uh, uh, chauffeur, gardener, houseboy needed. And contact so-and-so if you're interested. So I contacted so-and-so, and so-and-so was an intermediary. You know, I wasn't going to get to the rich people. <laughs> I was going to be vetted first by a nobody. And so I explained who I was, what my experience was, that I was in seminary. And so then they kicked me up to the real McCoy. And, you know, is this a state, you know, uh, <laughs> just trust me. Serious money, right? And you know it's serious money because there were five different alarm systems that worked in different ways, right? And uh, so I, I showed up there and the, the wife and the husband were fighting because they had had a party the night before and they had a big plate glass uh, table and somehow at the party the plate glass table had been uh, broken. And... Uh, so, you know, there was the post-party detritus, you know. And so I went in, and they wanted to pay me, I think, $5 an hour. And I said, no, I'm not going to work for less than $6 an hour. And the man of the house complained. If you go to Boston, by the way, you, anybody ever been to Boston? And if you look at one of the hospitals, you will see it says Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. He ran that hospital. It's named for him. Okay, that, that was my boss. And she ran the aquarium, was on the board of Georgetown University. I, all right. And so I began to work for them. And in their house all day, every day, seven days a week, was a man named Enoch Follett. 
And Enoch was 84 at the time. And Enoch was a godly man. And they took him for granted. He had grown up on the estate in the carriage house. His father had cared for the people that owned the estate before the Spaldings owned it. And uh, Enoch had grown up like raking the gravel on the driveway as soon as the carriage went out so that the gravel would look perfect when they came home. All right? It's what's behind the carriage trade. Okay? And Enoch would spend all day, every day, sitting on the sofa reading his Bible. And every time he read a chapter, he would have a different magic marker and check the Bible. So you could look all through his Bible, and my recollection is there were five different colors so far in his Bible. All right. Enoch loved a man named Jerry Falwell. Loved him. Some of you remember Jerry Falwell. And Enoch would give money to Jerry Falwell. But Enoch had no money. None. All he had was an International Harvester sort of pre-SUV, SUV, that was provided by the Spaldings, and they provided his insurance, and he had a little bit of pocket money, and he also would, once a year, get a gift from the Spaldings at Christmas. All right? A financial gift. They didn't pay him. You know, they were always traveling, that's why. And so he... He watched over the house, and I would work with Enoch. And I learned a lot from Enoch. I came in one day, and I said, I'm disappointed. And he said, boy, how are you spelling that? And I'm like, what? How am I spelling what? Is it H-I-S or D-I-S? And I learned the difference between his appointment or my disappointment, right? Enoch was godly. I'd been there a couple of years, and one day... Enoch came to me in, in, inside the front door, and he had an... Uh, he, no, he didn't, no. He came to me, and he said, boy, and he was a man of few words. He said, boy, remember, I was, what, 30, 31, with a wife and children, you know? Boy, that's what I was. Boy, come here, I want to tell you something. This was, this was unheard of with Enoch, that he would speak at length. And he stood in front of me in the front door, and he said, boy, just look around here. Look around. Well, you know, it sat on a cliff over the Atlantic Ocean, over Lobster Cove, you know. You know, Oriental carpets, paintings that the Boston Fine Art Museum would come out and take to put on exhibit. Okay? It was the cat's meow. Just look at all this, boy. He said, they had a full set of china on the wall that either Alexander Hamilton had given to their ancestor or George Washington. I don't remember what it was. It was this huge wall of china that came from either Alexander or George Washington. Just look at all this, boy. And he said to me, do you know, boy, he said, every time Mr. Spalding comes home, he comes in the front door, and do you know what he says? And I knew, but I said, no, what does he say? And he says, he says, Enoch, what's wrong? What went wrong, Enoch? What went wrong? What's wrong, Enoch? And then he was quiet. And of course, you know his point. His point was that all the wealth was worthless because all it did was cause Mr. and Mrs. Spalding to worry and to have to work hard to keep it up. And then he said, boy, he said, you know, Jerry Falwell was in a bad way last fall. Well, what had happened is there had been, if I recollect, it was a storm, and it had knocked down the primary radio tower that Falwell used. And so he said, and Jerry wrote me. Well, and Jerry said he was in bad condition, and, and he needed my help. And listen, people, you know me. I, I just about spit when he said that to me. 
because I, I could not stand Jerry Falwell. I could not stand the way that Jerry raised money. I couldn't stand the fact that Enoch thought that Jerry had written him, you know, that he thought he had a personal relationship with Jerry. I didn't like his politics. I'm not in favor of blustery, loudmouth Christian men saying that they have the way of solving our country's problems. I'm inoculated against it. And so he's telling me about how Jerry needed money. Jerry was in a bad situation. And he said, boy, so you know what? He said, I prayed. Now remember, I've never heard anything this long out of this man's house, and it's been two years I've worked with him. He said, so you know what? I prayed. And he said, I said to the Lord, Jerry needs help. And he said, I asked God that this year, instead of $500, that the Spaldings would give me $2,500 because that's what Jerry asked from me. And as he was saying that, he did this. And he had gnarled hands from arthritis. So it took a long time. And he finally got it open. And he, he opened it up. And, and he teared up. And he handed me the check from them. And it was $2,500. $2,500. And I was, I was so conflicted. I didn't want to call him a dupe. You know. And yet, I has not seen nor ear heard the kindness of God to us who belong to him and love him. And Enoch loved God. And I don't know how God made the decision to give Enoch 2500 that he would send off to Jerry Falwell. And do you know what um, do you know what he then said to me? He then said to me, "Not a word, boy, not a word." Because the Spaldings, if they had found that he had sent that money off to Jerry Falwell, it would have been nuclear, seriously, you know. And then he said this. He said, "Boy." He comes home, he says, what went wrong? What went wrong? He said, boy, lay not up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrode. But lay your treasures up in heaven. Now, one final point. I said I'd make an application of this story. You may think that at the end of this text that what God is saying is that these things are stored up for you in heaven. Calvin says, no. Calvin says what this is talking about is all the incredible blessings that we are receiving here on earth. Okay? You remember the Bible says no man has given up house, home, property, farm, or anything, but that God will reward him a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. Calvin says that God will open our eyes up to see the way he is a good father. And Calvin says, who has adopted us? And so here's my final application to those of you who are adopted. God gives all of us countless good gifts because he has adopted us. We are all alike. There is no difference between those of us who are white or black, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, work with their hands, work with our mouths. All of us who love God have constant gifts poured down. And the reason that he gives us those gifts is we lose our smarty pants attitude 
and we begin to realize that eye has not seen nor ear heard the blessings that he has for us. And every good thing that you receive today when you go home and eat, everything you receive is to direct your mind to remember that God has adopted you. (laughs) And that this life and its blessings are just the tiniest hint at what he has for you soon. And I'm going to end by saying this. I don't know how many people here are adopted. I have a number of, my wife and I have had a number of adopted kids in our church and our family. The beginning of the good gifts that God has given you, Moses, the beginning is that you are adopted by a mother and father who love God and will lead you to love him. Don't you ever question your adoption. Don't you ever focus on the things you don't have. Because that's ingratitude. Do you hear me? Nothing like a specific application. All of us need to learn to see God's kindness to us and not be focused on what God hasn't given us, okay?